This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Injustice. Uh, Due to our normal release day falling on a holiday, we decided to press pause on the case of June and Spanky and address a really busy week in the world of criminal justice. There are four items that we want to explore a little bit, and some have occupied a more prominent space in the public eye. And I think that's because of the ramifications for some of this. It'll be felt for a long time to come. Like, this this feels significant and historic. And look, we developed this show with the goal of shining a light on wrongful convictions. But we wanted to open up a conversation because just because so much has happened this week. So we're going to discuss uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, Julius Jones, Ahmaud Arbery, and Purvis Payne. And if you don't know all those names, it's okay. I feel like Purvis Payne got maybe the least amount of press, nationally anyways. And his case was overshadowed by Jones, uh, whose death penalty case was really front and center for the few days leading up to the date of his scheduled execution, November 18th. Now, Lisa knows way more information about all of these cases, um, and generally speaking, about most things that we cover. So let's let's bring Lisa into the conversation right away. She is the authority on these types of issues. Uh, she's the adult in this partnership, um, and she can speak intelligently about how we got here with these cases, while I tend to approach it from a more emotional standpoint. So, Lisa, I know you've spent a lot of time the past few days inside watching live coverage of the trials and following intently what what are your initial thoughts surrounding these four cases in the past week? Just sort of generally speaking, where are you at? I feel like I'm emotionally spent, uh, specifically between the Rittenhouse verdict and Julius Jones scheduled execution and last minute commutation. You know, it's been a really emotionally charged week. Uh, we did have a bright spot with Purvis Payne's case, which we'll cover. Um, and then the Ahmad Arbery case is ongoing. So for the last few weeks, due to an ankle injury, I have been watching trial coverage nonstop. Yeah, I think um, let's just jump right in. Um, there's, we have, we have a, a good amount to cover. So let's, let's start, in, uh, start with Rittenhouse. What happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin last week was an absolute miscarriage of justice that, that sets a dangerous precedent in America for domestic terrorists, which is exactly what, in my opinion, Kyle Rittenhouse is. He's a smirking, rat-faced domestic terrorist who committed premeditated self-defense. And it now opens the door for anyone to cross state lines and instigate trouble while 
other Americans are, exec- are exercising their First Amendment right to protest. Now, I know there are a lot of people calling for the Department of Justice to get involved with a federal investigation, and while I don't believe that will happen, I do think and completely support that Rittenhouse should be taken to civil court by the families of his victims and taken for every dime he will ever make. I think he should be prevented from ever profiting off this tragedy, be it through book deals or movie rights or whatever. Uh, He went there looking for trouble. While the verdict was a disappointment to many, including myself, it wasn't exactly a surprise. This trial came down to provocation. Did the jury believe that Rittenhouse's action or speech held to be likely to prompt physical retaliation? They obviously believed Rittenhouse. Yeah, I don't, I don't, unfortunately, I don't think anybody is really surprised by the verdict. Um, That's the, that I think is the saddest point. I definitely agree. It's, it's sad trying to prepare yourself for what you know is about to come when you feel like it's so wrong on so many different levels. Yeah. By this point, everybody should mostly be caught up with what went down. I know there is still some confusion, as I learned last night discussing this with my partner. She asked me some questions because she wasn't crystal clear, and honestly, I wasn't able to answer some of her questions. The main questions being, I think, is what happened and when. So after Jacob Blake was shot by cops uh, in the wake of some of rising racial tensions during the summer of 2020, protesters had converged on Kenosha, Wisconsin to demonstrate in the streets. And after a couple of nights of unrest where some businesses were burned, Rittenhouse and other armed counter-protesters showed up uninvited to help law enforcement. Now, some, like Rittenhouse, came from out of state. Kyle was dropped off by his mommy. So during some commotion in front of a car dealership, I believe, Rittenhouse clashed with protesters, including Joseph Rosenbaum, who threw a plastic bag at him. The bag contained personal items like a toothbrush and toothpaste that he had with him after being released from the hospital earlier that day following a suicide attempt. And Rittenhouse shot him four times. And I don't see how he can claim self-defense here, but whatever. Um, So now focus shifts to Rittenhouse as he becomes an active shooter. Protesters begin to follow him, yelling at police that he just shot someone. The police do nothing. At some point, he is approached by Anthony Huber. Uh, Rittenhouse, I believe at this point, had tripped and was on the ground. Huber swings a skateboard, attempting to protect his girlfriend and others. As he takes a second swing, Huber reached for Kyle's gun. Kyle turns, fires one round into his chest. Huber staggers away and would succumb to his injuries. Now, The the third victim, Gage Grosskreutz, approaches with a gun in hand. Now, first, his hands are raised, and I don't think he ever actually pointed the gun at Rittenhouse. That part's a little bit unclear. But Kyle fires a shot, severely damaging his arm. By the way, a little aside, all you fuckers screaming about how a good guy with a gun stops an active shooter, if this had been at a school or a mall, or a grocery store, or a nail salon, or a movie theater, and Grosskreutz approached Rittenhouse, he would be the hero in this story. Rittenhouse gets up, walks toward, and eventually passed the police without incident. 
He goes back home to Illinois. You don't get to claim self-defense in a situation that you instigated and escalated. We live in a white supremacist society. Now, I don't want to make this whole thing about race. All three victims of Rittenhouse were at least white presenting. But it does speak to the system of white supremacy that a young man could shoot at several people, kill two, injure one, and be free to sleep in his own bed that night. Many on social media and talking heads on news have made the comparison that if a young black man had been at the Capitol on January 6th, he wouldn't have made it down the steps. And we could talk about Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy playing with a toy gun who didn't get to go home that night. Or Trayvon Martin is an apt comparison. Kyle Rittenhouse is nothing but a Wish.com George Zimmerman. They both skated by on some stand-your-ground bullshit. So people say this can't be about racism because Rittenhouse victims, and they were victims, by the way. Uh, Judge Kyle's daddy didn't let the prosecution use that word, but they damn sure were. But they say this case can't be about racism because Rittenhouse's victims aren't persons of color. Well, his white privilege allowed him to not only make it to court, but walk free. And if a POC had been on trial, you think they would have been arguing about the specific length of the barrel of his gun? Or do you think the verdict would have been all but predecided? And we for sure wouldn't have gotten to watch it live on TV. So, Lisa, we can talk about the judge, um, how biased he appeared to be, his lack of decorum, how he actively assisted the defense. Uh, we could talk about the law in Wisconsin, which is different from nearly everywhere in that in cases of self-defense, the burden is on the prosecution to prove that he didn't fear for his life rather than the burden on the defense that he did, which is insane. Or basically this precedent allowing into law legalized vigilantism. Where do you want to go? Starting with Judge Schroeder, his decisions even pre-trial were highly scrutinized. Um, in this case, because it was a self-defense argument at trial, Judge Schroeder ordered that the term victim could not be used to refer to the people who were shot and injured. Um, obviously, that is very disturbing because people were shot and injured um, and they were, by definition of most people, victims. Uh, Judge Schroeder chastised aggressively. Uh, one of the prosecutors who uh, questioned Rittenhouse's post-arrest silence, which Judge Schroeder had previously disallowed. Don't get brazen um, with me. Right. Don't get brazen with me. Um, Judge Schroeder, one of the days of the trial, he didn't silence his phone and his ringtone rang with a song that is often played at Trump's entrance theme during his rallies. Um, there were just a lot of things that were very troubling um, surrounding the judge's behavior in court and his rulings, um, even, pre even pre-trial. Um, obviously, the prosecutor, Thomas Binger, didn't do himself any favors by bringing in allowed, disallowed evidence without asking the court's permission. Um, and there, you know, unfortunately, there prosecution was not successful of Rittenhouse. Um, there were questions around Judge Schroeder's allowing Kyle to pick the tiles for which jurors would ultimately make the decision in his case. When he was asked about this, he basically said that he felt like it would end questions um, about, you know, Kyle's fate 
that it, he felt better letting the defendant pick these tiles because then they couldn't come back and complain about it later. Basically, um, it's just it's just a lot of really strange things um, in terms of Rittenhouse himself. Um, you know, him telling the jurors during his testimony that the only reason he was in Kenosha that night was to render first aid to demonstrators and put out fires uh, to protect businesses just feels very disingenuous. I think that he testified to helping one person with a finger injury that night, and that was um, as much medical attention as he gave. You know, he had a straw man, a friend of his, purchase this weapon for him as he wasn't old enough to purchase it himself. Um, he's, he had a TikTok account where the bio stated, bruh, I'm just trying to be famous. Prosecutor Thomas Binger called him a chaos tourist. Rittenhouse inserted himself in the, dis- in the unrest and ultimately people were hurt. Um, for me, a lot of my feelings about Rittenhouse uh, come down to remorse. The celebration of Ricky Schroeder's donation of money for bail, the photos of Rittenhouse taken in a bar with Proud Boys making white supremacy signs while he was underage drinking. It doesn't appear that he cares very much for the loss of life and injury he caused or about the pain and suffering he caused family members and loved ones of the victims. And it just feels gross to me. Yeah, his his little breakdown on on the stand was so performative um and i think you had brought up the point that 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 panic attack or whatever it was was not about the victims or the crime that had been committed or about what happened that night yeah it was about him and we saw at the end of the trial his his response to the jury's verdict and it was similar to what he displayed on the stand. I don't know if that was a true panic sack, but it didn't feel like anything that he said was was about any sort of remorse whatsoever, even just for people having died. You know, it didn't feel like he was taking it very seriously when he's in a bar with the Proud Boys taking photos and posing for photos with them. So it, it's just, it's a big pill to swallow for people to know that folks died and what they were there protesting. And yet again, another white person skates by. July 28th, 1999. During a carjacking in his parents' driveway, Paul Howell was shot and killed. Howell's sister was in the car, but couldn't identify the killer due to a red handkerchief over his face. And two days later, police arrest Julius Jones, and they find the murder weapon in his parents' house, wrapped in a red bandana. And the only person to implicate him was his co-defendant, Christopher Jordan, who was a friend of Jones and incidentally had slept over at his house the night after the murder. He would later confess to a number of people in prison that not only did he kill Howell, but that he also framed Jones. I mean, Jones had an alibi for the murder. He was eating dinner with his parents at the time of the murder. But that evidence was not presented at trial. He had ineffective counsel. There was racial bias among the jury and uh, allegedly prosecutorial misconduct. Lots of reasons why he shouldn't be on death row. 
And this is why so many people, myself included, are adamantly against the death penalty. Cases like this where there is doubt. The idea keeps popping up that more guilty people go free than innocent people go to prison, or in this case, sentenced to death. But isn't one innocent person put to death too many? The Innocence Project does not take on just any case, and they've been on this one for years. The Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board have twice recommended clemency for Jones, both times by a vote of three to one. Uh, Kim Kardashian West and, like you said, a, a host of other celebrities are you know, ardent defenders. Some of the more than six million people that signed his petition, and yet the attorney general was, is awfully eager to kill him. And the fact that the governor, Governor Stitt, waited until four hours before the deadline to make the announcement is criminal. And let's talk about that announcement. Lisa, I'm going to defer to you. Yes, he got off death row, but it is without the possibility of ever being eligible to apply for or be considered for a commutation, pardon, or parole for the rest of his life. This is a tough one. Um, I don't know that there is a clear legal path forward for Julius at this time. Um, I question whether or not another another governor would allow him to submit a petition for clemency. I know here in Virginia, it is completely up to the governor's discretion what they allow. And so I do question whether or not that would be something he could pursue down the line when a new governor has been elected. Um, being that it is Oklahoma, you know, there's a good possibility that will also be a Republican that's that is elected. And so, you know, how that works out, it, it, it is going to be a political thing. Clemency is a political process. It's not a legal or just process. Um, th- this entire situation with holding the decision back until four hours before his scheduled execution is just wrong. Governor Stitt clearly knew what he was going to grant. And I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian by elongating that decision to that point. Um, I don't know Julius. I have a good friend, Lily Blanco, that is a, a staunch supporter of Jones. I can only imagine what those people that know and love and talk to him were feeling that day. Um, quick question about the, the four hour thing, waiting until the four hour, who is governor Stitt pandering to when he waits four hour, wait until, waits until four hours before the execution date to, to make this announcement? I think he's pandering to like-minded constituents. I think he's pandering to his attorney general. I think he's pandering to the prosecutor in this case. Um, even with all the evidence indicating innocence or even creating doubt about his guilt for an attorney general to be so eager to have this execution take place is just baffling to me. Um, the prosecutor in this case was well known for his death penalty sentences. Um, and he's never, despite a number of them being questioned, uh, he's never come off of his opinion that all of these people were guilty. So I'm not entirely surprised, but I am just disheartened about 
you know, they, they all say that they're Christians and, and they talk about, um, you know, treating people right and making the right decisions for the right reasons. And yet to wait that long to, to, to release that decision just feels very wrong to me. Everything about this case and the way it's been handled feels very wrong to me. Um, like I said earlier, this is one of the most well-organized and executed advocacy campaigns I've ever seen. Um, it is remarkable to see the grassroots nature of it. Yesterday, many high schools, they left their classrooms at, in protest of this execution. And what a beautiful thing to see the next generation standing up now for what's right and what they feel is right. You yeah. know, that gives me hope for change down the road. Um, but but this this case, I mean, right now, I don't I don't believe there's a clear path forward. And I believe that one I, I don't know if it was his sister or his mother indicated that um, in a in a social media post after the execution was uh, the, the commutation, I should say, what was granted. So, you know, two two life sentences is a prolonged death. Yeah. Death by you know? death by incarceration. Right, exactly. And even though I am over the moon thrilled that Julius is alive, today's actually the first time in 22 years his mother will get to see him and give him a hug because death row inmates are not allowed hugs um, or any physical contact in Oklahoma. Um, so I'm very thankful for those things. But there are still a lot of other questions and, and very troubling facts that embody this entire case. Yeah, it's I mean, I've seen I've seen a lot of you know really positive reactions to him coming off death row, but the the fight is definitely not over. There's still still a ways to go with his case. Given the way his advocates support him and the smart strategic way that they do it, this fight isn't over. It's it's just getting started. February 23rd, 2020. Ahmad Arbery was going for a run when three old racist white dudes suspected that he was the person who had been breaking into houses in the area. So two of them, a father of the year and his son, jump into their truck and follow him, attempting to talk to him. And Arbery ignores them and keeps running. A third man sees what's going on jumps into his truck, gives chase, and decides to film the encounter on his cell phone. They get in front of Arbery, they jump out with a shotgun, and when Arbery makes a move toward the gun, attempting to not even defend himself, just shield himself against a shotgun, he is shot and killed. So between this self-defense and Rittenhouse's self-defense, I think there are a lot of girlfriends and wives in prison right now for self-defense that would really like to have a conversation. Uh, so we don't, we don't know what will happen here. I, I suspect they will get convicted. Despite the white supremacist society thing I mentioned earlier, the powers that be don't mind letting a couple of poor white trash hillbillies take the fall once in a while if it means they can stand up and say, see, racism doesn't exist. But let's look at a couple of things. So one of the defendants asked for a plea deal, I think more than one time, and was denied. And I think that bodes well for the prosecution. Um, the defense attorney, and Lisa, I'm going to bring you in on this one. I'll talk about this. The defense attorney objected to 
African-American clergy being present in the courtroom as it might unduly influence the jury. So Reverend Al Sharpton and Reverend Jesse Jackson have both been in attendance. But by making this case for racial influence, it prompted a protest. And when a number of people crowded the front steps of the courthouse, that same attorney requested a mistrial because of the protest for something he created. To be completely clear, uh, the protest, as you called it, was called a prayer wall from the black pastors who were in attendance. Um, William Roddy Bryan Jr.'s attorney, Kevin Goh, stood up a number of times during the trial asking that black pastors, specifically mentioning Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, uh, not be allowed to be in the courtroom. He asked, how many black pastors does a family need? Um, Well, if your son was murdered, you could have as many as you like to. Um, And I, I doubt having seen the way that his family has behaved throughout this entire situation, that they were asking people to show up there anyway, even though if they did, it would be completely within their right to do so. Um, the, the attorney in question, Kevin Go, um, he, he just seems to be a little bit clueless about a lot of things. And thankfully, uh, Chatham County Superior Court Judge Timothy Walmsley Uh, is very different from the judge we talked about in the Rittenhouse trial. He seems to make very thoughtful decisions, try to be fair to both sides. And uh, he described Kevin Goh's remarks as reprehensible. And despite that, that attorney continues to get up and call for the same things. Ironically, just prior to the defense resting in this case for all three defendants, Kevin Goh did request a plea deal for his client, William Roddy Bryan Jr., and that was rejected outright by the prosecution in this case. I do think the writing is on the wall here. I mean, the only other, only other notes I have um, for this case is the charges themselves. So it's uh, murder, aggravated assault, false imprisonment, there's a hate crime element, and kidnapping. I don't know if I'm forgetting anything there. But they, they will be going down for some, if not all, of this. Um, and I think if they don't, unfortunately, we're probably going to see more unrest. I worry about that. Um, Travis Michael was the only defendant to take the stand in this case. Uh, he did stand up well on direct. Unfortunately, his story was picked apart on cross by Linda Dunnikowski, the Cobb County Senior District Attorney. Uh, She presented a very thorough case, crossing every T and dotting every I meticulously. Was that the father or the son? That is the son. And I believe that they put him on the stand because he was the shooter in the case. And so he was the one that kind of needed to testify, to explain what he was thinking when he shot them. And that if the jury believed his story, that it would help his father and Roddy Bryan. Okay. That's my speculation. Anyway. Okay. Um, yeah, Bryan, he thought that the jury was underrepresented with, with guys called, quote, Bubba or Joe Sixpack, which I find to be hilarious. Um, and Arbery and Rittenhouse cases are actually nothing alike, even though they both have claims of self-defense. 
Rittenhouse went out looking for trouble and found it. Arbery's murder was filmed from the vantage point of his assailant, and he posed no threat. He only tried to disarm the man with a shotgun pointed at him. Anything you want to say to wrap up on uh, on Arbery's case, Lisa? Just that closing arguments are set for Monday, and we will see what happens then. All right. Okay, um, Purvis Payne. Uh, I will admit that I don't know a ton about this case, uh, which proves the point we made in the open that that this one has been sort of overshadowed. Heard some cries for help through an open window or, or coming from an apartment, and he went in to investigate. And go ahead and if you want to pick it up from there, Lisa. So Purvis Payne is convicted of the 1987 deaths of Millington woman Sharice Christopher, who was 28, and her two-year-old daughter, Lacey. Christopher's three-year-old son, Nicholas, survived multiple stab wounds in the brutal attack that took place in Christopher's apartment. Payne has maintained his innocence throughout the more than 30 years he's been in prison. During his 1988 trial, Payne said that he discovered the crime scene after hearing calls for help through the open door of an apartment. He said that he bent down to try to help, getting blood on his clothes and pulling at the knife still lodged in Christopher's throat. When a white police officer arrived, Payne, who was black, said he panicked and ran, fearing he would be seen as the prime suspect. Okay, so fast forward to this week. Um, Payne has been on uh, death row ever since. Correct. And uh, so what So what? What happened this past week? So this week on Thursday, Shelby County District Attorney abandoned the pursuit of the death penalty in Payne's case. And on Friday, Purvis Payne's death penalty sentence was removed. Um, this was due to new legislation that was passed in Tennessee over the summer. It was designed to prevent death row inmates with an intellectual disability from being executed. And basically, the state's witness could not say any longer that he was mentally intact. He does have a disability. And for that reason, the district attorney decided to abandon the death sentence in his case. I give her a lot of credit for doing so. Um, This case has gone on for more than 30 years. Um, There are questions of innocence. He is absolutely intellectually disabled. Um, it's his constitutional right not to be executed if he if he is intellectually disabled. And what what's what is the difference between the legislation that recently passed and the constitutionality of not being put to death if you are intellectually disabled? What's what's the what's the distinction there? It's the it's the way the states interpret these rulings. Um, And so if in Tennessee they can find a way around some of these things that are granted um, that the the Supreme Court rules on, then they will continue to pursue these cases. Um, Being now that um, there was a state rep in Tennessee who led the charge to pursue this new legislation, um, it's re- it's kind of reinforced that we're not going to execute disabled people, and that was what led the way to the death sentence being removed. It's actually a, it's a nice step forward in Tennessee. 
Tennessee is another really tough on crime Southern state. Um, I have a client there, Adam Brazil, that I helped with his case. And it was, it's just mind boggling to see the way, the way the law works there, like in a lot of states. Um, But thankfully this is, I, I mean, honestly, this was the high point of the week for me seeing that, you know, after so long that they're kind of trying to at least move forward and not execute somebody. So that being said, is, is there, is there a path forward for pain or is, will, will he be in prison for the rest of his life? I mean, just that, just because he's been taken off death row, um, is there, is there any claim of innocence, any appeal that he has left? So Payne's attorney, Kelly Henry made this statement. Our proof that purpose is intellectually disabled is unassailable and the death penalty sentence is unconstitutional. The state did the right thing today by not continuing on with needless litigation. This matter will now come come to a close for a very short period of time. We, however, will never stop until we have uncovered the proof which will exonerate Purvis and release him from prison. I think the fight will continue for Purvis. There are a lot of people that believe in his innocence and have worked on his case for decades now. it's just post-conviction cases are tough and it's a 30 year old case. And so how likely is it that they will find new evidence that could get him back into court? You know, that's what it kind of comes down to now, but I'm, I'm hoping the best for them. And if he's innocent and, and it seems like a lot of people believe that, then I, I hope the right thing happens for him. Yeah. So but at least for now, he's not going to be dead. Right. <laughs> So they, they need new evidence to appear so they can get this back back in court, right? Right. They'll need evidence that would exonerate him um, to get back in court or new evidence that wasn't argued before, that wasn't available at trial, things like that. So. Um, all right. You have anything else you want to wrap up with uh, with pain? You want to touch any of the other um, cases before we, we wrap up today? No, I just, it's been a, it's been a long week and it's been a draining week. And I hope that, you know, some of these things don't feel very fair, but they're also bright spots and we have to celebrate the wins, um, in the, in the midst of disappointments. Yeah. Um, I want to take a a quick second to acknowledge something. Uh, we started this podcast a few weeks ago and we weren't sure how, how widely it was going to be received, um, but we actually have picked up a number of international listeners, uh, behind us. Our second largest audience is in Norway, followed by UK. Um, Hey guys. Um, also Uruguay, Netherlands, Australia, South Africa, Denmark, Canada, Russia. Uh, so we've, we've managed to, to reach an international audience and, you know, we always want to hear from our listeners but especially after this one, I, we, would, we would be interested to know how this is playing out in other countries. Um, we don't feel like it's shining, it's, it's showing us in the best light. Um, but please, by all means, um, hit us up and let us, let us know what, what you think. Um, and with that, uh, thanks for taking the time to listen to this uh, this slight deviation from our normal content. Uh, if you're listening to this on Thanksgiving Day, uh, it's okay to go back to your family now. Your racist uncle is probably passed out. So um, it's safe to go back for seconds. Uh, no call to action this week. Just listen. Like if somebody tells you, hey, I heard about this thing, and you know what? It sounds pretty fucked up to me. 
give them an opportunity to explain their position. Who knows? You might see a perspective you hadn't seen before. And maybe with a little bit of compassion and empathy, we might just make it through this. That's it. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. The Injustice Podcast is brought to you in association with Death by Incarceration. Thank you to Crawlspace Media. Sound design, audio post-production, Jason Usry. Special thanks for original music to Bernaldo Rivaldi. Check out all his great stuff on iTunes and Spotify, Bandcamp, wherever you get your music. Please support independent artists. Right now is a, a real tough time for creatives. Go to InjusticePod.com for more information, including what are the great podcasts we are listening to. You can also find information to contact the hosts directly there. General inquiries can go to info at InjusticePod.com. Thank you for listening. This has been an Injustice Production. Thank you.